Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash GCF. This activity is supported by an educational grant from CTI Biopharma Corporation and Sierra Oncology Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on myelofibrosis. This activity comprises a series of four streaming episodes with Dr. Ruben Mesa. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name is Ruben Mesa, and I'm the Executive Director of the Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Welcome to this activity entitled Managing Cytopenic Myelofibrosis, New and Emerging Therapies and Who May Benefit. In the next four short episodes, we will explore the options and issues when treating patients with myelofibrosis. During this first presentation, we will discuss the case of a patient with newly diagnosed high-risk myelofibrosis with anemia. Now, this is a 68-year-old woman with myelofibrosis. She presented, as many patients do, with symptoms. She had fatigue, bone pain, abdominal pain, been going on maybe six months or more, but particularly noted over the last couple. She has clear splenomegaly, and on labs, she's anemic, a hemoglobin A2, thrombocytopenic, high white count, bone marrow, very confirmatory of the diagnosis, hypercellular, increased reticulin fibrosis, three out of three. Now, for this individual, as for all with myelofibrosis, we begin with an assessment of risk. There are many different risk scores. However, the risk or prognosticating score that's probably used most common internationally is the DIPSS. Using five clinically readily available parameters, age over 65, white count over 25, hemoglobin less than 10, the presence of peripheral blood blasts, or the presence of constitutional symptoms, one can generate a score that really can help to distinguish a survival that can be as poor as 1.4 years or as great as 15.6 years. Now, these prognostic scores are, in particular, helpful in helping us try to make a decision regarding the utilization of stem cell transplant. Transplant can cure myelofibrosis. However, it's a complex therapy, it is a burden for patients, and there clearly can be transplant-related mortality. So, in short, we aim to consider transplantation in individuals that are good candidates who have a life expectancy of less than five years. Now, this ends up being the minority probably about 90% of patients, either by their choice or their team's choice, go on to medical therapy as uh, how we treat the disease, sometimes with transplant as a backup. Medical therapy, since the approval in the fall of 2011, begins with ruxolitinib, which was approved on the basis of two randomized studies, rux versus placebo, ruxolitinib versus best alternative therapy, both showing superior ability to control spleen and symptoms compared to those respective control arms. And over time, we have seen additional benefits in terms of likely progression-free and overall survival by long-term analysis as well as by real-world evidence. Fidratinib, approved on the basis of the Jakarta study, has been approved since the fall of 2019. And here, two different doses of fidratinib were superior to placebo, for control of spleen or symptoms, with 400 milligrams once a day, 
being the best combination of safety and efficacy and being the dose of the drug that is now FDA recommended. So how would you manage this individual? Well, we would begin likely with ruxolitinib as the frontline agent. It is likely that the hemoglobin of A2 would drop further. We would support that patient. They may require a transfusion or two. Now, frequently we will see that anemia improve after 16 to 24 weeks. If it does not, uh, we may need to consider other options, such as the addition of an erythropoietin stimulating agent or even lespatercept that currently is in clinical trials for use in combination with ruxolitinib. There have been positive phase two studies. It is approved in MDS as well as in hemoglobinopathies. Thank you for watching. In the next episode, we'll explore the impact of anemia in myelofibrosis. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on myelofibrosis. This is episode two of four, presented by Dr. Ruben Mesa. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two, where we'll explore options of a woman with myelofibrosis who has developed transfusion-dependent anemia despite being on treatment. This is a 67-year-old woman with myelofibrosis. She was diagnosed with myelofibrosis three years ago and has had persistent anemia and fatigue. When we examine her laboratories, we see that she is anemic, the hemoglobin of 7-8, but in addition to that, is requiring transfusions of two units every two to four weeks. Her platelets are just 80,000, her white count is 19,000. She's currently been on ruxolitinib at five milligrams twice daily for the last 24 months. Anemia can be a significant burden in myelofibrosis, both from anemia that is intrinsic to the disease, from splenic sequestration of red cells, to inadequate production from the fibrosing process in the bone marrow, to impact of anemia of chronic disease with elevation in hepcidin. But additionally, JAK inhibitors, ruxolitinib and amphidratinib, the first two of our approved agents, have anemia as a well-recognized on-target toxicity. To some degree, the inhibition of JAK2 can decrease the production of erythrocytes. So both of these things can combine to uh, contribute to anemia in a patient with myelofibrosis and, and does represent an important aspect of managing these individuals. In the COMFORT-1 and COMFORT-2 study, anemia was a significant toxicity that was observed, uh, and particularly on those arms for individuals with uh, anemia. With fedradinib, we see as toxicities both the potential of cytopenias, again equivalent to or even at greater rates than that seen with ruxolitinib. It is difficult to compare between studies as these drugs have not been compared head-to-head as it relates to anemia. Additionally, there are GI toxicities which can be prevalent. They typically can be prophylaxed against with anti-nausea or anti-diarrheal drugs. And typically, patients are able to manage through this, and the rate of discontinuation is not excessive. So how do we manage anemia in the patient with myelofibrosis? Well, first, with ruxolitinib, we realize that if we lower the dose, it may decrease the degree of anemia. However, it can certainly be limiting in terms of the impact of efficacy on splenomegaly and symptoms. I found in my practice, we do try to increase the dose of ruxolitinib over time. And either one, 
If anemia persists, continue the patient with supportive care with transfusions as need be. Two, according to the current treatment guidelines, we will sometimes consider the addition of either an erythropoietin stimulating agent, particularly in individuals with a EPO level of less than 500. Additionally, there are other options that may be on the horizon. Lespatercept is an agent that is approved in hemoglobinopathies NMDS and has been used uh, in this combination in phase two studies. There currently is an ongoing phase three study trying to look at this as an option uh, for individuals. Additionally, there are drugs on the horizon, including mamelodinib, an additional JAK inhibitor that has had some potential to improve anemia. Procretinib, approved in February of 2022, may have less uh, negative impact on hemoglobin and therefore be less of a negative as it relates to anemia, and there can even be some uh, improvement in anemia. So I think we will have further options for these individuals. But I think the key is that we aim to maintain good response in splenomegaly and symptoms while we try to attempt to improve issues with anemia. Mamelodinib is one of these key future options which I had mentioned. And in the Simplify 1 study, which was randomized between mamelodinib and ruxolidinib, we saw clear signals of improvement in both splenomegaly and symptoms, but also a strong lean toward better data as related to anemia and transfusion independence with individuals on mamelodinib, as well as for those requiring transfusions, requiring less units of transfusion. The Simplify 2 study, which was a crossover, which was a second-line study that had many patients compared to mamelodinib versus bruxolidinib, the difference was less distinct uh, however, part of that was really due to the design uh, of the study. The momentum study that uh, Dr. Rostopchuk and I recently led, uh, very clear evidence of benefit of mamelodinib in the second-line setting compared to danazol in individuals that failed ruxolidinib for higher rates of achievement of transfusion independence as well as improvement in anemia after crossover. In terms of safety, overall, the drug was pretty well tolerated. Uh, low rates of GI toxicity that were not a barrier to patients remaining on the study. Thank you for watching. Now next, we'll consider the impact of thrombocytopenia in a patient with myelofibrosis. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on myelofibrosis. This is Episode 3 of 4, presented by Dr. Ruben Mesa. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three, where we'll meet a man with myelofibrosis who has developed thrombocytopenia. This individual is a 72-year-old man with myelofibrosis. He presented with high-risk myelofibrosis a few months ago after experiencing typical sort of advanced symptoms we could see in the disease, night sweats, bone pain, weight loss, shortness of breath. He's had worsening thrombocytopenia, around 75,000, and it is an individual with a known history of coronary disease, COPD, and coronary disease with a stent placed about 10 years ago. On labs, he's anemic. Platelets are down to 38,000. Why count to 12? How is he being managed? Uh, he's receiving ruxolidinib, 5 milligrams once daily, uh, and receiving red cell transfusions. It's noted the individuals had some mild improvement in splenomegaly, uh, and symptoms at this very low dose of ruxolidinib. 
but still is still quite symptomatic. Now, as we consider thrombocytopenia, this was the dose-limiting toxicity for the use of ruxolitinib. So for this individual, what are our goals? Well, our goals, even if the platelets are low, is really the same. Yeah, an adequate reduction in the size of the spleen and improvement in symptoms. Indeed, some of the survival benefit that we've seen with JAK inhibitors and ruxolitinib have been achieved primarily in individuals that had clearly a greater than 10% volume reduction in the size of the spleen and improvement in symptoms are clearly tied to improvement in quality of life. So our goals are the same. The difficulty is that at the doses that we can manage with ruxolitinib with this individual with thrombocytopenia, uh, we're unable to achieve that. So we are looking for new options. Now, a unique new option approved in February of 2022 is pacridinib, both a JAK2 but also an IRAC1 inhibitor that uh, we believe that has an impact on the inflammasome and other aspects of the disease that one allows the drug to be used at full dose even in individuals with marked thrombocytopenia and two may stabilize or improve both low platelets and even uh, individuals that have anemia. So its approval is for individuals with a platelet count of less than 50,000 whether in the frontline or second-line setting. The PERSIST-2 study was led by my colleague Serge Rostovchek. This was an individual's could be frontline or second line, but individuals had to have a plate account of less than 100,000. It can have GI-related toxicities, and again, we prophylax against these and monitor for these. They have not been a barrier in terms of its use. Thank you for watching. Now, in our final episode, we'll discuss the case of a patient with secondary malofibrosis, also with thrombocytopenia. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on myelofibrosis. This is episode 4 of 4 presented by Dr. Ruben Mesa. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 4 where we'll meet a man with a central thrombocytopenia that has transformed to secondary myelofibrosis. This is a 67-year-old gentleman with secondary myelofibrosis or post-ET myelofibrosis. It presented after his long course with ET, uh, with fatigue, abdominal discomfort, and weight loss over the past few months. He previously had ET diagnosed around 20 years ago when he was solely 46. Been treated with hydroxyurea for many years to control the difficulties of his disease. But it can happen, as we know, especially in individuals that have had the disease for 10 years or more, he has progressed to myelofibrosis now at age 66. He's been receiving ruxolitinib at 15 milligrams twice a day for the last 12 months. With this, he's had difficulties with anemia, quite a drop from diagnosis. He has persistent splenomegaly, and the degree of thrombocytopenia has worsened from a baseline of 70 now down to 35,000. Now, as we think about an individual like this, and we are aiming to try to have an impact on the disease, there's many factors we are trying to both assess as it relates to both risk factors and clinical risk factors in, these, in the two forms of secondary myelofibrosis, post-ET and post-PV myelofibrosis. Clinically, age, white count, anemia, and reticulant fibrosis can be a big factor particularly in post-ET myelofibrosis. 
Additionally, we know that the JAK2 allele burden uh, can be a risk factor. In post-ET, the actual the absence of the JAK2 symptoms can be an adverse risk factor, as well as the presence of ASXL1. We continue to learn more about the, the molecular profile for these individuals. Now, as we look at the outcomes for all three of these entities, we realize that all three are really quite uh, severe, uh, and all three can have a very clear negative impact uh, on length of life through an adverse prognosis, as well as quality of life. There continue to be more efforts to try to refine the prognosis in individuals, both based on their phenotype, as well as their disease burden, and genetic molecular typing. So what are our goals with this patient? Well, we're very much as with our other modules, our goals remain the same. Improvement of spleen symptoms, cytopenias if we can, and ideally to improve progression-free and overall survival. Now this individual at this dose of ruxolitinib has very significant cytopenias. And if we were to remain on uh, ruxolitinib would need significant dose modification. This individual is really a, a classic example of an individual who may benefit from a change to pacridinib. The platelet count is now less than 50,000. There is significant splenomegaly. They have seen ruxolitinib uh, previously uh, in their therapy and that the use of full dose of pacridinib may be beneficial for this patient. Now, when we try to weave all of these things together, we had started our discussion saying that we assess any patient with myelofibrosis, whether primary or post-ET or post-PV, with risk assessment. With medical therapy, particularly individuals with upfront cytopenias, a plate account of less than 50,000, pacridinib is our clear option. And certainly there's strong data to consider its use in 50 to 100,000, or as a subsequent line of therapy, even with higher platelet counts for individuals that had failed ruxolitinib and or fidradinib. Mamelodinib is not yet approved, but once it becomes approved, individuals that also have concurrent anemia, particularly transfusion dependence, I think will be an important consideration, clearly in the second line, but also for subsets in the front line, and we will see what the FDA label and the NCCN guidelines will recommend in terms of how we balance the use of these two options. Thank you for watching. This concludes our program. I hope that you will find this information useful as you manage your own patients with myelofibrosis. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.